When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby and welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Today... The Bretton Woods Agreement, 75 years on, it's the agreement that set the US dollar as the world's reserve currency, at the time, pegged to gold. Now, the deal was a compromise, and that compromise gave away so much. So how much better could Bretton Woods have been? And how relevant is it today? And is it time we got the world leaders together again for another Bretton Woods Agreement? And what would that look like? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Yes, last month on the 22nd of July, we marked the 75th anniversary of the Bretton Woods Agreement. John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter, who was the chief economist at the U.S. Treasury Department at the time, were the architects of the agreement. Now, the aim was noble enough. After a couple of devastating world wars, one of which hadn't been totally wrapped up at the time, um, uh, was that uh, that we would find a, an effective way to protect our... This is what uh, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, said at the time, was the, the aim was to find the most effective way of protecting our national interest through international cooperation. That is to say, through united effort for the attainment of common goals, which uh, is obviously the antithesis of the present uh, uh, president's uh, uh, outlook on life. Or, in fact, you know, we look, we look at all aspects of life today as Britain tries to get out of uh, Brexit. We've got Donald Trump ramping up tariffs. Income is becoming more unevenly distributed. We're seeing the rise of populism and nationalism at a level that we haven't seen since, uh, well, since Hitler, really. Uh, so those uh, those noble aims of Bretton Woods seem to have gone by the wayside. Not much global cooperation, much more U.S. imperialism, it seems. So we have moved from that original plan, haven't we, Steve? Because at the onset... Uh, well, let's look at what the Bretton Woods Agreement, you know, how it was trying to achieve that. It was trying to achieve it through uh, uh, more trade, international trade, I guess, and by stabilizing currencies. So we had currencies pegged to the value of the US dollar. The US dollar was pegged to the value of gold, and we had a fixed gold price. So we have a fixed gold price, pegged currencies. The only variable, it seems, was how many US dollars were in circulation. And the U.S. controlled that. So didn't this make the U.S. basically the central bank of the world? I mean, they had a lot of control, didn't they? This is the problem. And actually, that's a, that's a very good summary of what actually happened. But it, uh, the, in terms of architects, you had two competing architects. One was uh, the Jörn Utzon of architecture. For those who don't know, that's the person who designed the Sydney Opera House. Mm. And the other was uh, whoever designed Nuremberg. Oh, pardon me, that's being a bit extreme. Um, what, <laughs> I shouldn't uh, have brought up Hitler, should I? Which I said, no, the, he- I said the Hitler word first. You did, you did, you did. Um, I'd go, what's a decent building in America? Penn State, Penn State Railway, uh, like a, a box that's functional uh, uh, but, but dominates, dominates a particular market. So the, Keynes's vision was quite rich and quite rounded and an essential part of that was not having a national currency as the international reserve currency. If you look at um, uh, before the Second World War, the reserve currency fundamentally was the British pound. And Keynes did not want to have a national currency continuing as the uh, post-war 
uh, medium of international exchange, he wanted to invent a artificial currency called the Bancor, which was to be administered by what became the International Monetary Fund. Of course, without this, the power that Keynes wanted, it was a very, very different organisation. And the role of the IMF was to issue Bancors in relation to the size of every country's GDP. So America would get the most, of course. Um, smaller, I mean, you'd have a certain bias in favour of developing economies as well as, a, mm. as aid, an aid concept as well. But the Bancor would be proportional fundamentally to your GDP. You'd use the Bancor for trade. And if you're running a trade deficit, you would ultimately run out of bankers, which would mean you'd have to go to the IMF and apply to have your uh, have your exchange rate depreciated in return for getting more bankers. So that was a control on countries running deficits. They'd face depreciation of their currency. On yeah. the other extreme, if a country is running a surplus and accumulating bankers, then an interest rate was charged on their accumulation of bankers at the IMF what became the IMF, and that was the income money was distributed to countries running deficits, well, third world countries running deficits. So it, it, the, the, the um, depressing, in terms of economic activity, the depressing impact of a country running a surplus, trade surplus on the rest of the real world, was counteracted by part of that surplus being paid to, to deficit countries and developing countries. And it's it, it passed a certain level as well. There, there was a, a further penalty to encourage further uh, to, to have a surplus country to force it to actually import more. Uh, so Keynes's target was to keep trade deficits, I think, from memory, at no more than 2% of GDP. Right. But that, that all went by the wayside, didn't it? And because didn't of Harry. Happen a- because of Harry. We haven't, yeah. we've got to, let, let's talk about Harry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay. Because okay. Harry Dexter White, his main objection to Keynes's proposal was that there was no, that the American dollar should be the reserve currency, not the bank or. Yeah. And that's where it all went wrong. Because Keynes, and as I said, I mean that does with those controls with a a, a, a U.S. dollar that they can control the, uh, the the availability of, and everything else is pegged to it. Uh, I mean they are determining the value of every currency, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And, and the other thing about it too, and this is Yanis Varoufakis makes an excellent point of this in what he called the global minotaur, and that is that partially because if you are a reserve currency then every other country on the planet has to have your, your currency in its central bank to be able to purchase goods overseas. And, and, and like the, the Australian bank situation, for example, because Australia normally is running a trade deficit, uh, as well as to finance their own operation by boosting their long-term equity by borrowing money overseas long-term and borrowing American dollars, they can then sell those American dollars to uh, people who wish to import goods into Australia. And because there's more imports than exports most of the time, that stock of money gets run down. So what you've got is a permanently enhanced demand for the American dollar. Now, mm. one of the side effects of that is you get an overvalued dollar. And over time, it means that though America, of course, began the Second World, the post-Second World War period with a huge trade surplus because it was placed at the only place that hadn't been bombed. So it had the factories. Um, it was a trade surplus. That rapidly turned into a permanent trade deficit starting in about the 1960s, and by uh, the uh, early 1970s, um, in particular France, had accumulated so many American dollars that with the fixed exchange rate, de Gaulle, and this is where you... Is it, would it be great to have a, 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 back in the world a politician to actually have balls? Because de Gaulle, mm. whatever his flaws, definitely had them. And he was threatened to deliver... Um, France's accumulated American dollars to Fort Knox in return for all the golden Fort Knox. He would have literally cleaned the place out maybe a couple of times over. And the, the pressure of that plus 
American multinationals. Also. Because he was holding enough US dollars to be able to afford to do that. Is what is he that what you're saying? He could have bought all the gold in Fort Knox. Right. Yeah. So so all so the so the whole so all the so the the what the whole world's economy was based on the reserve for the whole world that that gold could have been sitting in France because he yeah, could have afforded. The price at that stage was thirty five dollars US an ounce for the gold. Yeah. That's the, well, they set it at that, didn't they? That's that, it was fixed at that. That was the. They, they had a fixed level for gold, didn't yeah, they? Th- th- yeah, which was $35. Now, when when this threat was first posed, uh, the, the first step, I think, was for Nixon to abrogate the gold standard. Um, but what then happened was a two-tier market. You had the price went from $35 an ounce to, I think, $42 an ounce um, in terms of what they would the American dollar government would pay to receive uh, American dollars in return, how much gold they'd give back. So they're giving less gold. Uh, but still giving gold in return for it. And then you had the open market and gold offering off as well. And, you know, basically a complete delinking of the, yeah. yeah. But the other thing which- Didn't realise, it's an interesting story, I didn't realise <laughs> quite how that happened. But yeah, uh, I mean, the whole system was obviously set to fail from the beginning. But I mean, that, the idea of pegging currencies, the idea behind that was to try and prevent country, countries devaluing their currencies to make their their exports cheaper, which is obviously something that's still very relevant today. But even if you did that, I mean, it's, it still ignores the role of interest rates in all of this. So if they want to stop um, people, uh, and also obviously attracting foreign capital was a key part of that to try and get money coming in. But if you've not got any, if you've pegged currencies, but you haven't got any control of interest rates, like the euro is operating, for example, um, you know, you, countries could still offer high interest rates to try and a, a attract foreign what, money. What so, you got, what you got as well, and this is uh, was the finance became an international phenomenon. And my good mate Trun Andresen, the systems engineer in Norway, who applies systems dynamics to economic issues, he. Um, reminded me of a quote, I can't remember quite the source of it, but Keynes saying at one point, and above all else, let finance be national. In other words, don't let finance become an international phenomenon. Now, because of the whole way that Bretton Woods was designed, or because it meant that America would ultimately have an overvalued currency and therefore end up running trade deficits, it therefore had to continuously import goods for the rest of the world. That's the argument Yanis makes in the Global Minotaur. And while they could continue doing that, running a growing, growing trade deficit, um, then this could go on indefinitely. But of course, with the trade deficit in the fixed exchange rate world and the gold being linked to it, that's why the system fell apart in 1971. There's one, just if I dive another question for me, I'll dive in with a little historical point that's of importance too. Uh, a study was done by the Federal Reserve, a very good statistical study I read back in 1972, I think, because American multinationals at this stage were all over the planet and they were aware that this break was about to come. And what was going on was because the huge amount of the purchases by, by American multinational are of goods from another wing of the same company in another country, yeah. what they could do was manipulate the amount of money they had in American dollars versus the amount they had in, in other currencies by giving delayed terms of settlement. And in a study by, the, I think, the US Senate, they found that the, the scale of that by, by American corporations uh, giving longer to pay in terms of dollars and demanding immediate payment in other currencies of their own subsidiaries, that was enough to trigger Nixon to have to force the break of the gold standard. I mean, it's very clear now, isn't it? Whatever rules you try to impose to try and uh, uh, remove uh, sort of unconventional behaviour in the finance world, uh, it, it's impossible, isn't it? There's always, they're always going to find a way. This There's always going to be a way. Keynes, I mean, Keynes is, I've got to confess here, I haven't yet read The Treatise on Money. 
That's one big hole in my reading. Um, right. But in the treatise on money, you, where Keynes does talk about the nature of money creation and so on, in the general theory, and you can read this in the preface, he explains he leaves those details out. Now, one of the reasons why was he thought that the um, the issue of banking had been settled uh, between uh, between uh, 1930 and 1936, and he could leave that particular <laughs> detail out. And he was also trying to incorporate it in the supply and demand analysis, which was a huge mistake. Um, but he left the banking sector out of his logic in that in that stage. But that was an essential part of his vision, the role of the banking sector. And he, he realised you don't want to have a financial sector that spans more than one country because then they can start doing the sort of stuff we're talking about now. Whereas if it's national, they can't. They've got, there, there's some limitation. They've got to pass through another institution like a central bank, like and then the IMF as Keynes saw it happening. And you couldn't have the level of exploitation of different financial sectors by different countries' financial sectors by the financial sector in general. Of course, that's what we ended ourselves up in, so it's a total disaster. Can I ask what might be a stupid question? If if you've got the US dollar tied to the value of gold, how do you uh, expand the money supply? Presumably you can't, and then that would be why the US dollar would... well, I mean, it would. I mean, it would. It would just stop growth for the economy, wouldn't it? Well, the because trouble was that, that that's partly where the excess of American dollars came from, because and that's why De Gaulle could pull that trick. Mm. Because to actually back that in a hundred percent way, then you've got to say that your expansion of of money supply must be identical to the expansion of the gold supply. Now, of course. Yeah. In a world in which the banks create money by lending, which is again left out of conventional theory, it was in Keynes's mind in the in the treatise. It didn't turn up in the general theory, and of course, Samuelson totally mis- distorts the general theory, and we get so-called Keynesian economics that ignores all the stuff completely. Um, that that link um, was was broken uh, because the the banks were creating more money for for domestic finance and for international finance than there was gold being mined. So the gap became between the amount of dollars in circulation and the amount of gold that those dollars were backed by in the Federal Reserve. And if there hadn't been a trade deficit for America, that wouldn't have been a problem because um, unless the Americans themselves started turning up at Fort Knox and demanding gold, which they didn't do. Uh, but, of course, because the American only has huge trade deficit, the dollars are accumulating in the rest of the world, a different political system, and then De Gaulle could come along and say, I'm going to, I'm going to ship all my American dollars, which were often literally turning up in, in paper form, but also bank accounts. I'm going to, I'm going to sh- uh, present those at Fort Knox and demand your gold, and that's when the gold standard had to give way. But then that is because the US broke the terms of that agreement then, isn't it? Because if the agreement was that the money supply should be tied to gold, that the, the US dollar is tied to gold and there's only so much gold, then it, that there shouldn't be an increase in the supply. But there was, yeah, because yeah. again, the gold, the people again think, and this is, you see this in Bernanke's, uh, if you look at Bernanke's essays in the Great Depression, he does what's it's a equation where you break something into a series of ratios and one of the ratios he had was the level of gold to the level of reserves in the federal federal system which sees gold as sitting at the basis of the money money creation system this is the idea that money is a commodity or expression of a commodity and that commodity is gold um well it's not banks create money by lending double entry bookkeeping is the foundation of money so you had again a false model of how money is created underlying the idea that you could use gold to link to the value of the American dollar and so on. So, again, a false model, tried in the real world, at some point it breaks down, and that's what we've seen again. Right. But, I mean, if it had worked, um, <laughs> then we, would have, uh, we wouldn't have we would have money creation. 
we would yeah. we would we wouldn't have the same level of growth but we possibly wouldn't also have this this rush to assets would we well there's you know there's the whole lot of issues there but that that's pretty much true because uh, if you have um, the creation of money strictly tied to how much new gold is being mined when that gold price is constant which is the vision of uh, of the original Bretton Woods agreement then you're going to have a very slow rate of money creation now in that world, uh, if that was actually strictly enforced, what it would mean is most people would be in negative equity. And this this is where the, uh, seeing the world in double entry bookkeeping terms, which I, I do now ever since having designed Minsky, uh, gives me an insight that's, that sounds strange, but it's it's mathematically correct. If you If one person's asset is another person's liability, which is the truth, and assets minus liabilities equals equity, which is the truth, then the sum of all equity is zero. Yeah. Okay. Now, for banks to operate, banks are, are, are defined as bankrupt when their assets are less, are less than their liabilities. They must maintain positive equity. That means in the sum, the rest of the world must be in negative equity. Mm. Okay. Now, if you're in negative equity, uh, one thing you'll try to it's do- It's like it's just a just thing in a casino. It, well, if I mean, yeah, you want to go to the casino and gamble on chips and don't leave. And if they keep, if the house loses every time, then the house closes. Yeah. So what mm. you, what you therefore get, given that situation, is that people are trying to get positive equity, and they get it by speculating on asset markets because the way we value assets is is a, is a is, it's a myth. We multiply the price of assets, uh, the lo- price of the last asset sold, by the outstanding stock of all the assets. And that's how we value the, you know, what, 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 is our, what is our house worth? It's the price the last house in the street sold for times how many houses there are in the street. If all the houses in the street tried to sell at once, that price would collapse. So it's mm. a false measure, but it does give you the illusion of positive equity. Now, what that means is if you had this strict control on the money supply by the government, so it was literally limiting its money creation to the growth in the gold supply every year, then people, individuals, non-banks would be negative equity, feeling the pressure of negative equity, and and I understand that pressure right now, personally. Um, They would then be trying to, how can I get positive? You know, what can I do? Oh, look, the share market's going up, I'll buy some shares. And that means you get into private debt. Now, in the private debt, of course, you have an increase in the money supply. So this whole thing undermines the the idea Mm. of a stable currency. It was all doomed to fail. So when we moved over, when de Gaulle, plucky de Gaulle, basically uh, demonstrated the, the the false the falsehood behind all of this, we moved to fiat money. The, the, then we were at the stage the U.S. dollar could be issued um, as determined, obviously by the United States, as it always it's, had been, in fact, before, which is why it broke down. But yeah, yeah. It, so determined by the government or by the central bank or yeah. whatever, uh, because all other currencies were still pegged. I mean, didn't that mean that they actually had more control of the world's financial well, system? Well, ultimately, the pegs all broke down and we had the floating exchange rates. And again, the, the myth of mainstream economics was... But that didn't happen straight away, did it? But, but that, obviously, that's it the reason why... Three, it took about three, it's only about two or three years. You had, uh, like, the, the initial thing was the, the gold standard was broken to two standards. Th- 35, um, $35 an ounce for in, uh, institutional purchases of gold, $42 an ounce for private purchases of gold. And I, th- I think in that way, De Gaulle was defined as being private and he would have paid 42 rather than 35 and that got the America out of that particular uh, bind at the time. But then 
Over the next two years, the whole idea of fixed exchange rates broke down and he went to the regime of floating exchange rates. And here's where a piece of neoclassical fallacy comes in again. The expectation of neoclassical economists was that this would solve the trade balance problem. If you go back to Keynes, he wanted to limit the trade deficit to no more than 2% of GDP. America, I'm not sure what scale it was running, but it was quite substantial. There were countries running trade deficits of 5 and 10% of GDP and countries running trade surpluses, Germany and Japan in particular, of about 10% yep. of GDP. So, right. was- so, the, so the argument would be would be just this whole supply and demand argument, isn't it? So if you get a country that is, uh, it, that is producing a lot of exports, then that's going to... Uh, weaken the value of their value of their currency. Drive, drive uh, it up, drive it up, drive it up. Sorry, yeah. which will make their exports more expensive, and therefore uh, someone else will be able to come in yeah. and do it cheaper, and uh, and the world the world is a, a happier place as a result. Which, yeah, which doesn't seem a simple mm. reason that if you if you're a country like Germany or Japan and you're making a trade surface of that nature, that gives you an investable sum uh, that helps you to develop your technology further and keep ahead of the rest of the world. So yeah. I remember as a kid and- Oh, they ignored progress. They ignored That's where progress. they went wrong. <laughs> this is actually Keynes himself made the same point about his own writing. But writing in 37, he looked back on what he wrote in the general theory and he said he'd left out what he called the finance demand for money. And he said it, uh, it, 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 this, this was a, a big, he said I should have had four demands for money. He had the speculative transactions and precautionary motives for money in the general theory. So you, you have it for transactions, which is pretty much Milton Friedman. You have it for speculation that's been the, gambling about the price of assets versus the, the um, price of goods. And you have it for um, precaution in case things go wrong. But he said the fourth demand, the finance demand for money actually precedes investment. Now, if you've got a huge volume of money coming in through your uh, trade service, where, you know, if you effectively trade service is forcing your central bank to create domestic money for you, that means you can continue industrially developing your technology and remaining ahead of the rest of the world, which is running deficits and, and doesn't have as much easy finance to invest and improve its factories. So the trade deficits became, rather than trade surpluses disappearing because of the floating price of money, which is what Neocastle thought had happened, they were sustained. And we've now ended up in a regime of floating exchange rates with trade deficits and trade surpluses of the order of 10% of GDP, surpluses in particular, Germany, Japan, China, Korea, yeah. uh, running trade surpluses of up to 10% of GDP. But if we if we went back to Keynes's original idea, uh, where you have this uh, this reserve currency, which is not the US dollar, and it's not anyone's currency, it's just the world's reserve currency, I mean, that his his idea was that everything was pegged to that, though, wasn't yeah. it? He didn't have that with floating exchange rate. No. It wouldn't work with floating exchange rates, would it? Uh, it could work slightly, but it worked better with pegged uh, because it gave you a you give you a way of a, you know enforcing a bit of discipline on countries running uh, running trade surpluses and so on. Uh, the floating exchange rate it will work better than the, the current system we've got, which is one reason why I like the you know I was, I was amazed by the Libra idea because in that sense Libra is very similar uh, to what Keynes wanted as a bank or. But yeah, I think it would work. It, it certainly would work better, and that's one reason I'm just. I mean, I'm actually Donald. But there been, but I mean, there were no fluctuation between. So, for example, if I was buying Aussie dollars in pounds, um, would they change? No. If the, if everything was pegged to, to one currency, then it all the world's currencies would all be the same all the time. Would, would there no, be no, no currency speculation? The part of variation built into the proposal by Keynes was that if you're running a trade deficit, you run out of bank or. And that would apply to every country in the world, including America. So if you're running a trade deficit for too long, you run out of bank core and you've got to go to this, the IMF to ask for more to be issued. And one of the conditions of that being issued is you have to must devalue your currency. Right. Okay. But in the opposite direction, if you're running a surplus, the idea is the It's not day-to-day trading. That is a, that is a, 
a discussion that's had. Yeah, and it's, yeah it's, right. it'd, it'd be something you might do every once every four or five years, but there would have been changes, but it would have been more staccato than we have right now. Right. So currency speculators would be out of a job. Oh, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> With the um, so this is never going to happen, though, is it? I mean, I mean, there is talk about you know the U.S. being the world's reserve currency is not a healthy thing, and we've talked about that in the past. And maybe it's not that healthy for the United States because it uh, inflates the value of the U.S. dollar. Um, but uh, I mean, could, could, are we ever going to reach Keynes's original idea? And and could and and just how would it operate on a on a? I don't quite understand how it would operate if it was on a variable interest rate. Uh, a variable exchange. exchange. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one thing has made um, that outcome more likely is Donald Trump because he's weaponized the American dollar. And we've seen that mm. as he's dealing with India, uh, Russia, China, the, uh, the European Union. He's weaponizing it in a very dumb, well, of course, a dumb way uh, because he wants to have a balanced, balanced trade or American trade surplus preferably with every country on the world. And yeah. you simply can't do that. It's just not going to work. So that is- Unless you followed Keynes's idea. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that means giving away the American dollar, which he's not going to do. You know, he wants to, again, this bully attitude of the Americans is a major factor behind the chaos we have in the financial markets now. Um, so that he won't, he would never agree to it. But of course, countries like Russia and China in particular- uh, and now India too, and part of the European Union, all are getting such a load of shit courtesy of the American treatment of the dollar under Trump. Um, think that they're, th- they're actively thinking about bringing in an alternative currency for international trade, which would be based on a basket of commodities. The thing is, while they've been thinking about it, Facebook and friends have, have done it with this concept of the Libra. Mm. So, uh, But I know, like, the, if you read the uh, works of the previous uh, chairman of the Chinese Central Bank, he was actually a fan of the Bancorp. So I, I don't know whether those discussions are still continuing, but I know there were discussions between Russia and China in particular about, uh, first of all, denominating trade in their own currency, and then secondly, starting an international bank uh, banking sector based on a concept like the Bancorp. No, I'm not quite sure how the West is going to take to it a currency that's established by you know out of Russia and China though. Maybe uh, maybe there needs to be some Western influence in all of that. Mm. Look, the, the Bretton Woods Agreement um, obviously also created the IMF, which you've referred to a, a, a few times, and also the World Bank. They are still around. Just about the only bit of the Bretton Woods Agreement that's left, and the IMF uh, was there to monitor exchange rates. It would have uh, had a perfect role with the Keynes model. It was also there to uh, lend reserve currency to countries that needed it, countries which are high in debt, for example. Uh, and sadly, uh, they've been doing that, but often to countries with bad human rights records. Yeah, so well, yeah, it, 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 are they doing a good job? Do we no, still need them? No. I mean, this is what the IMF has turned into is a cabal of neoclassical economists imposing neoclassical theory on the world. Yeah. And their idea is always, if you've got a, if you've got a crisis, you're running out of American dollars. It's... Uh, this, is, this is because during the fixed exchange rate, it was much more much more common. Or you've got an inflationary surge in your economy. Their advice is universally austerity, and yeah. uh, like particularly in Indonesia, push up your interest rates. Yeah, uh, structural yeah, reform, privatisation, subsidies to the poor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, yeah. The IMF. I mean, I wouldn't like to be an IMF economist going to uh, countries like Indonesia or Thailand these days because they suffered so badly under that. There's a strong political pressure against them. And rather than being like in Keynes's vision, they were both to stop countries running deficits from doing so by devaluing the currency and some austerity there if the economy is booming too highly and sucking in imports because of it, but also to force the surplus nations to spend. 
Now, of course, the with with the not having the role of the banker in the first place, they they did have a, a, a stash of money created by the uh, countries in the global financial sector, making but shareholders basically. Shareholders, in, 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 in the, but they've mm. used that money to bash countries that are running trade deficits and do nothing to those running surpluses, and that's increased the imbalance in the global economy as well. So what's the, the difference between the IMF and the World Bank? I, again, at the onset, it, it seemed fairly straightforward, wasn't it? Because the IMF was there to basically lend uh, money to countries that were, were high in debt. The World Bank was much more about fighting world poverty. And their, their, their aim was that uh, to reduce the share of the global population that lives in extreme poverty to 3% by 2030. And it did that. It issued bonds. Um, but um, and 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 they, as you say, they were the, the shareholders basically for uh, of which America is the biggest shareholder. Uh, so that makes it a bit of a political organisation, as you as you've been describing. But the difference between the IMF and the World Bank, well, I mean, it, it, because the because the IMF doesn't have that uh, that role of overseeing the, the exchange rates under the Keynes model, aren't they both doing the same thing? In the same way, almost. There, yeah, there are similarities between the two. One, one has got more of a fiscal capability, so the World Bank can make loans to uh, economies, and you know, that's involved in financing government spending and so on. Uh, the IMF is more of a sort of policeman that comes in and says, "You're running a, you're running a deficit. We have to uh, uh, ch- change your economic policy." And by the way, I've, I can't give the full details here for for obvious reasons, but one of the people who've been in touch with me over the last 10 years uh, was one of the chiefs of the IMF who was going around in the national economies telling them what their government policy had to be. So the IMF became a policeman for the global uh, treasuries, of particularly the the treasuries of the third world economies. And he said they had a totally simplistic spreadsheet model of the national economy where the set of numbers had to be achieved and they were to go in and basically bully the treasury staff of these countries, one after the other, until they conformed with the IMF stroke World Bank model. And uh, it was an absolutely appalling exercise. They, it, it meant if there were any subsidies to uh, help the poor buy, uh, buy grain, for example, they had to be abolished. And this has led to uh, ultimately to events like the Arab Spring. So the extent to which the IMF and World Bank have destabilised the political world by having a naive neoclassical vision of how it functions cannot be underestimated. A naive uh, neoclassical uh, idea of the world that isn't oh, that's applied an by... My apologies. I know, but also that isn't applied in, in countries like the United States, no, they where, can, where obviously yeah. they can subsidise industries as much as they like. I mean, one, the one reason Britain uh, went through its conservative period, of course, was where under the floating fixed exchange rate, it did have a deficit, and of course, that's what George Soros used to exploit it and make his initial fortune. Um, and and that period, the experience having the IMF come into Britain, I think, is a major reason that coloured the American, the British political scene to be so against the um, the, the state centric views of the Labour Party at the time. They, they think the big neoliberal shift under uh, there's been in the UK since was that was a very major factor. So if you ever experience it as a developed country, it's a shocking experience. If you go back as a developing a developing economy, it's a shocking experience. Nobody gives a shit about. So the Bretton Woods Agreement at the time, I mean, it was quite a substantial move, wasn't it? I mean, you got a, 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 the the world together, and they reached an agreement that that fundamentally changed the way the the global economy worked. So. Yeah. Uh, do we need another one? We do. I mean, uh, we, we, yeah, we I do. Mean, 
yeah, a blank I, sheet of paper and say, well, okay, let's do something as revolutionary as the Bretton Woods Agreement yeah, was. Yeah, and this time lock, lock Harry Bretton Woods out of the room. I mean, Harry, Harry Bretton was Harry Dexter Smith because yeah. that, that decision to make the American dollar, was that was the thing that just set up a chain of catastrophes we're now still living through. So I think in some ways that's where uh, Donald Trump has done the world a great service because if we ever get to that sort of meeting again, with the experience of how America has abused that power, uh, any country that puts it forward, I think, would face an enormous pushback from the rest of the world, no matter how powerful that country was. We don't want to repeat it. We don't want another Donald Trump. We don't want to repeat of that experience. So if we ever did get to having a Bretton Woods 2 in a genuine sense, not just one of these mythical reunion numbers, uh, then I think the idea of a, of a national currency being the international trade vehicle would not, would not be, would be pushed off the agenda rather than, of course, in the post-Second World War period, America do what they damn well like because they were the only major, major functional economy left. So uh, Keynes's idea that there should be an alternate re- reserve currency obviously was one of the one of the good takeouts from the Bretton Woods Agreement that unfortunately didn't see the light of day. But was there is there anything else good that we can take out of that out of that meeting seventy five years ago? Um, I think the controls that Keynes had on the idea of stopping deficits being too high. Um, you know the two percent limit on deficits and surpluses because there's a focus on. Um, on you know, government balance, you know, getting the government balance. But of course, as we've discussed many times here, the government has an unlimited capacity to create its own currency. Uh, and if, you, if your government runs a surplus, then the rest of the system is running a deficit. But we've got a cough, mate, pardon me. <coughs> if the government is running a surplus, the rest of the system is running a deficit, and that actually causes you know, a, a seri- can cause a serious breakdown. But at the global level, the sum of all trade deficits is zero. So there's a yeah. reason to constrain that. And Keynes was trying to constrain the band of deficits and surpluses to no more than 2% of GDP. And I think a large part of where the, the instability we've seen is coming out of those deficits and surpluses hitting up the order of 10%. So to get back to the vision of where we control it, and this applies whether you believe modern monetary theory or not on this point. As you know, modern monetary theory argues that it's, it's beneficial for you to run us. Uh, run a, a trade deficit because exports are a cost, imports are a benefit. I completely reject that argument. But nonetheless, if it was true, then you'd have a reason to constrain countries running deficits that were too big because they'd be exploiting the rest of the world by sending their pieces of paper around one direction and getting goods back in the other direction. So there's a need to control trade deficits because they are the one thing that sums to zero. But if you, and, but if you can, you, can you control one without controlling the other? Can, how, how do you control deficits without controlling surpluses? Well, that's exactly the point. You've got to control both, yeah. and uh, and so that vision is part of the. Well, what do you do? You say that say those countries that are exporting a great deal. Hey, you got to cut cut down on your exports. How's that going to work? Well, that's because you got to not so much cut down on exports, but import more. Right. The pressure that Keynes had was to say, if you are running a trade surplus, then we're going to penalise your holdings of Bancor at the International Monetary Fund and transfer those to other countries. So you had a choice. You either had the money taken out of your pocket or you could spend it yourself on, on other goods. All right. Makes sense. Interesting stuff, isn't it? Um, but but it's yeah, – uh, Very but, much so. Uh, but what we've got now uh, is really a mess, <laughs> isn't it? So yep. t- time to uh, get it into some sort of order. Interesting discussion as always, Steve. We'll catch you again next week. Indeed. This is, of course, all the more timely with Donald Trump complaining about uh, currency manipulation by various countries around the world. Uh, so clearly uh, it shows that the system isn't working. That's it for this time for the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby with Professor Steve Keen. Back again next week. Thanks for listening. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.